listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Scripture reading this morning is from Romans chapter 11, starting with verses 1 and 2 finishing with 13 through 32 uh, from the New Revised Standard Version. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. I am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I glorify my ministry in order to make my own people jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. And if the root is holy, then the branches also are holy. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in their place to share the rich root of the olive tree, do not boast over the branches. If you do boast, remember that it is not you that support the root, but the root that supports you. You will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand only through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, perhaps he will not spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen. But God's kindness toward you provided you continue in this kindness, otherwise you will also be cut off. And even those of Israel, if they do not persist in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you've been cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? So that you may not claim to be wiser than you are, brothers and sisters, I want you to understand this mystery. A hardening has come upon Israel, until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, out of Zion will come the deliverer. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regard the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their ancestors. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they have now become disobedient in order that, by the mercy shown to you, they too may now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience, so that he may be merciful to all. reading Jim. <clears throat> my mic coming through now? We good? All right. Apologies to folks who are watching on a live stream. My mic died right at the start of the prayer, so 
but it sounded like I was yelling. I was hoping other mics would pick me up. All right, so I say this every time that I've been gone for like a week or more, um, but like this time I really mean it. It is so good <laughs> to be back with you all. Uh, for anyone who's not aware, uh, I came down like violently ill two weeks ago uh, with what appears to have just been a really nasty stomach bug. I was like really sick for two days. Uh, the COVID test came back negative, so that is good. Um, I still stayed away for about a little over a week just to be safe. Um, and I am feeling much better now, and it is just so good to be back here with you all. Oh, you don't have to clap, it's fine. <clears throat> too much, too much. Um, I do want to say thanks, though, to some folks. So thanks again to Alicia Young, who stepped in two weeks ago to read my sermon when I couldn't be here. And uh, she also helped with the service last week. And thanks as well to the tech team. Last week they played a pre-recorded uh, sermon from me, and the technology actually worked out for once. So big thank you uh, to the tech team and everyone who like stepped up these last two weeks to make sure we could still worship together. We are at the end of this section in Romans that we've been working through for a little over a month now. Uh, Romans 9 to 11. It's this kind of weird section where Paul is grappling with Israel's rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. Remember, Paul's a Jewish Christian. He's known for his missionary work to Gentiles, and he is writing to these churches in Rome that are divided between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians at a point in history where tensions between Jews and Gentiles had never been higher. So there is just a powder keg of like tribalism, polarization, racial resentment, just like right under the surface. Nothing at all like our world today. Uh, anyway, some of you got that. <clears throat> Remember, too, this is important to keep in mind. This is all being written before there was a distinction between Judaism and Christianity. That is key to understand what is happening here and reading this well. Christianity at this point in history was just this weird little sect in Judaism. It was starting to grow and to uh, incorporate Gentiles, like non-Jews, people like us, but it was still just this weird little branch in Judaism centered around this Messiah who none of the other branches believed in. So, like, obviously, this triggers a bit of an existential crisis for Paul, and I imagine a lot of his fellow Jewish Christians. How could the majority of God's people miss the boat on Jesus? How could so many of the religious insiders, the people who knew the faith, who, who, who went to church, to synagogue, who read their Bibles, how could they miss what God was doing with Jesus? Why would God possibly let that happen? This is the section of Romans where Paul is basically trying to figure that out. I thought about splitting this chapter into two, so we'd cover it over two weeks because it's really, really long. But it is a single unit. Like, chapter 11 of Romans works really well together. Uh, we did cut out a section in the middle. Um, so, to make our reading a bit more manageable, I would recommend go home at some point, read the whole chapter, read the whole section. But I don't think we missed too much. I do want to highlight one thing we skipped, though. It's not like critically important, but it's kind of cool in like a Bible nerd way. And you know how I feel about like Bible nerdy stuff. So can we geek out for just, just like a minute or two? Are we good? Okay. So 
If you look at verse 3 of this passage and read all the way to verse 10, and I realize this is too small to read, just trying to help you visualize it. We're not going to read this in its entirety. This is the part we skipped. But if you read this section, starting in verse 3, you get this long list of quotes. Paul's just quoting off various things from the Old Testament. In verse 3, Paul quotes the prophet Elijah from 1 Kings 19. It's this story where God's people are killing all the prophets, really fun stuff. But that's in verse 3 and 4. Then down in verse, I think it's 8 or 9. Yeah, in verse 8, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy and the book of Isaiah. Skip ahead a couple slides, Travis. Boom, there we are. And then in verses 9 and 10, down here at the bottom, Paul quotes from Psalms. So you get this long list of quotes from across the Old Testament. Paul's basically proof texting here. He's like drawing together this series of quotes from his Bible, the Old Testament, to basically back up his point and support his argument about what God's doing with Israel. And I think it's worth pausing on this for a second, not to read it in its entirety, but just to see where he's drawing from. See, and this is the next slide, Travis. When Christians think about the Bible, we tend to group it in two collections, right? The Old Testament and the New Testament. Most of us are at least aware of that, right? Just, just making sure. Okay. <clears throat> Christians think about the Bible as two sections, two collections of texts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, the Old Testament being the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the, Paul, the Bible that like Paul and Jesus and the early Christians would have used, um, and that, by the way, our Jewish friends today still use. And then the New Testament is like Christian scripture. It's the stories about Jesus, all these letters from the early church by people like Paul. So we think about the Bible like this. But for Paul and the early Christians, and for our Jewish friends today, they think about the Bible very differently. They're just working with the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, and they have a different way of organizing the texts, which is, believe me, important for this. See, the Hebrew Bible is grouped into three collections. You've got the Law, or the Torah, which is the first section. That's the first five books of our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Then you've got the Prophets, which is like all the standard prophetic books, Jeremiah, Isaiah, but also a lot of the historical books, Kings, Samuel, stuff like that. We tend to associate the historical books more with the kings, but the kings are always the bad guys. It's the prophets in those stories that are the heroes. So um, our Jewish friends group that with the prophets. You've got the law, you've got the prophets, and then the third section, does anyone know? This is not like standard Christian stuff. We don't know about this stuff. The third section is this collection of other writings, which is called the writings. Ketuvim in Hebrew, the writings. That includes stuff like um, Esther is in there, Ruth, Chronicles is in there, and the book of Psalms. And in fact, the book of Psalms is like the crown jewel of the writings. That list, that huge collection of poetry right in the middle of your Bibles, that is part of of the writings. And in fact, a lot of Jewish interpreters, when they talk about their Bibles, will talk about the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Different way to look at it. Here's how this applies to Romans 11 and all that stuff we skipped. 
when Paul reaches this part of his argument where he's backing himself up and he strings together all these quotes from his Testament, he quotes from Deuteronomy, which is part of the law. He quotes from 1 Kings and Isaiah, which are part of the prophets. And then he quotes from the Psalms, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. He's basically covering all his bases, checking all three boxes of his Bible going into this argument, which I think is kind of cool. I know that makes me a nerd, but I think this is important. Here's the thing. A lot of times when we read the New Testament, a lot of the New Testament authors do this. Paul does this all the time. You often, one of the things that makes the Bible hard to read is these long lists of quotations, but the next time you see that, check the cross-references. There is a very good chance that you will find a quote from the law, a quote from the prophets, and a quote from the Psalms or the writings. It's a little window into how Paul and these other early Christians viewed their Bibles. Is that cool to anyone other than me? I see like one, a couple, couple of hands, good. Good to know, okay. <clears throat> Let's get back to the, main, to the main thing. I just want to highlight that before we totally skip it. We've been working through this section of Romans for a while now, where Paul is wrestling over that question, why would God let his people, the Jews, miss the boat on Jesus? Are you ready for Paul's theory? Are you ready to break this down and hear, like, Paul's answer to that question? Strap in, because it's kind of (laughs) weird. This is kind of a weird one, okay? You can basically break Paul's theory into a few sections— Some of this is stuff we've been covering for a few weeks. Some of it's new, but it's all in our reading for today. The first big idea is this theme of disobedience, judgment, and restoration from Israel's scriptures. Disobedience, judgment, and restoration. If you know the story of the Old Testament at all, God's people, the Israelites, start out as escaped slaves from Egypt. This is the Moses story, right? Charlton Heston, Ten Commandments. Hopefully you've seen the movie. The Israelites, though, they go to this mountain in the wilderness, Mount Sinai. Moses climbs up on it to receive the Ten Commandments. He was particularly windswept for the occasion. (laughs) And this is basically the beginning of God's people. This is the high point. This is... God and the Israelites entering into this relationship where God is going to be their God. They're going to be God's people. They get the law. And does anyone know what happens next? Like the next scene right after this? Anybody? Anyone see the movie? What was that? You got to yell. Sorry. You got to yell. Golden calf. Yes. The very next scene after this is the golden calf calf. The Israelites melt down all their gold and create an idol to worship. And then they don't even enter into the land that God has promised to give them because the people who live there are scary, right? And so God makes them wander in the wilderness for 40 years, which is a little harsh. Like, that's, that's a little tough, but that's the punishment. And then 40 years later, a new generation emerges made up of these people's kids and grandkids who enter into the land. Disobedience, judgment, and restoration. Do you see the pattern there? Okay. Then the Israelites go in the land. They rebel all over again. They fall into sin. 
disobedience, only to be judged and then restored usually about a generation or so later. This pattern repeats over and over and over again till it gets so bad that Babylon sweeps through, destroys the land, and the Israelites are carried off into exile, basically slavery all over again for about 70 years until a new king comes who allows them to go back home and they are restored. Disobedience, judgment, restoration. You see that cycle? That's the whole Old Testament in a nutshell. You basically just got a crash course in the Old Testament. You're welcome. So back to Paul's argument, Paul's theory. He begins by linking the rejection of Jesus with his ongoing cycle of disobedience and restoration. We shouldn't be surprised when God's people miss the point. That's what we do. That's the story. That's what always happens. But it's a story that always leads to restoration. And here's how Paul gets there. He argues, point two here, that God has allowed the Israelites to go astray in this instance so that the Gentiles can finally be included in the family of God. This is where it gets a little strange. I'm going to read from verse 11. So I ask, have they, that is the Israelites, stumbled so as to fall? By no means, but through their stumbling, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Just so we're following the logic here. Paul's arguing that God has allowed the Israelites to reject Jesus so that the Gentiles can receive salvation and make Israel jealous. God's basically like a jilted lover in this scenario who's like having a side fling with the Gentiles. That's us, by the way. We're the other woman in this scenario. And it's all to make the Israelites jealous. You should be laughing at this. This is kind of funny. That all sounds like, you know, right? Like that, a little out to lunch. Except that this is the way the Old Testament talks about God and Israel all the time. The metaphor is that they are a married couple struggling with infidelity. Typically, it's God's people, the Israelites, who are chasing other lovers, going after other gods. But this time around, the shoe is on the other foot, and God has cozied up with the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. So as weird as this is, Paul is using his Bible here. Paul also uses an analogy of an olive tree, which is way better than infidelity, so let's go with that for just a minute. Verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted into their place to share the rich root of the tree, do not boast over the branches. If you do boast, remember that it is not you that supports the root, but the root that supports you. Paul's using a really familiar metaphor here for his audience. The olive tree was this really important symbol in ancient Israel, basically stood for the nation of Israel. Ancient Israelites would have looked at the olive tree the way a lot of Americans look at the flag. It's this symbol with a lot of, like, national and religious weight. 
And Paul argues that God has clipped some of the branches from the olive tree so that a new wild branch, us, can be grafted in. And the tone shifts a little bit in verse 19. It'll also be on the screen. You will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. This is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand only through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, perhaps he will not spare you either. Does that scare anybody else? Just me. Just me. Good. Paul's not messing around here. And you almost get the sense reading this. Remember the context. There are probably some Gentile Christians in Rome who are elevating themselves over their Jewish counterparts. Remember, Jews are the religious minority in this time. They are second-class citizens. So there might be, you could imagine, some Gentile Christians who are assuming this sort of racial superiority to their Jewish counterparts, like God has canceled his covenant with them in favor of the Gentiles. You even find this today. There are a lot of Christians who assume that we have somehow replaced Jews, which, like, you don't have to know much history to know that goes to some really scary and dangerous places. The assumption that God's covenant with Israel no longer stands, that it's been replaced by Christ's covenant with us, Paul shuts that right down in this section. You're just a branch, a wild branch, grafted into someone else's tree. Who is the branch to insult the root? God's covenant with Israel isn't canceled. It is the root of the tree that we have been grafted into through faith. As a side note, and we talked about this before. I mentioned it a few seconds ago. We talked about it a month ago. This is a section of Romans that has been used to some terribly anti-Semitic ends throughout history. Any reading like that is shut down with an honest reading of this olive tree metaphor. Something to bear in mind. So to recap, again, we're following Paul's theory. I know this is a lot. Why did God let this all happen? Why did God allow the bulk of the Israelites to reject Jesus? Paul's theory is that it's part of this ongoing cycle of disobedience, judgment, and restoration from the Old Testament. God has allowed this to happen in this case so that the Gentiles could be included, so we could be grafted into the tree to make Israel jealous, so that, this is the last point, God's mercy can be made available to all. Verse 30, just as you, that's the Gentiles, were once disobedient to God but have now received mercy because of Israel's disobedience, So they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they too may receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that God may be merciful to all. Remember that cycle. It always comes back to restoration 
and mercy. This section ends with mercy. Why did God let this happen? Why have things gone haywire? haywire? Why have so many of God's people failed to follow Jesus? So that God could show mercy to all. There's actually something really interesting happening here in the Greek. When Paul writes all in this passage, he's using the Greek word pantas, which actually means all. See what I did there? When Paul writes all, he actually means all. Not some, not a few, not the ones that like, we like or who agree with us. God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that God may be merciful to all. That is everybody, everywhere, for all time. See, what we often do, what I think people of faith often do, is we like to set limits on God's mercy. We like to define the boundaries of kind of who gets mercy and who doesn't. We get mercy. Of course we get mercy. We're in. But not those folks. They go to the wrong church. They don't go to any church at all. Oh, they were baptized the wrong way, right? Maybe they belong to the wrong country. We set these boundaries around God's mercy. Paul is not having that. When he writes all, he actually means all. Jew and Gentile, Christian and otherwise, God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that God might show mercy to all. And that brings us back to the question that opens this chapter of Romans. Has God abandoned God's people? I don't have to tell you this, but 2020 has been a hell of a year. It's been a tough year, and we're only three quarters of the way through it, so brace yourselves. But this has been a year where the question, has God abandoned us, feels really relevant. 200,000 deaths from COVID-19 in our country. Almost a million worldwide. Racial unrest and violence in our cities brought on by police brutality in communities of color. The deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Daniel Prude, so many more. We're living through economic disaster environmental disasters, an epidemic of loneliness and isolation, polarization, conspiracy theories spreading like wildfire online. And it's all been coupled with so many unexpected high-profile deaths, especially of like inspirational people. Kobe Bryant, Chadwick Boseman, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. With all this loss, all this heartbreak, all this suffering, it is really easy to assume that God has abandoned us. God has turned God's back. Why else would the world be so screwed up right now? I'm going to let you in on a little secret about the Bible. 
the Bible never gives a straight answer to that question. The question of evil, why we suffer, why good things, well, I was going to say why bad things happen to good people, but let's go with it, why good things happen to bad people. The Bible never gives us a straight answer to that question. But it comes close here. Why does God allow us to miss the mark and screw things up? Why does God allow even God's own people to throw the world into chaos? Why didn't God just make a perfect world populated by a bunch of like obedient sheep or robots who would do whatever God said? Maybe because a world like that would have no need for mercy. God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. I don't know about you, but I've had about as much mercy as I can take this year. Sorry. In all seriousness, though, the Bible never tells us why God allows us to suffer. It only promises that God will show mercy every time, in every place, to all. God has not abandoned God's people. God has not, will not, and cannot abandon us. Even when we are at the end of our rope, and it feels like we've had all we can take, even when we've messed up, wrecked things, made a total mess, and embraced violence, even at our lowest, darkest moment, God has not abandoned us, but is right there, extending a hand offering mercy. And that hand is Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for your offer of mercy to all. Thank you to the mercy you've shown us for your work in our lives, for even grafting us into somebody else's family tree. God, help us to see your work in our midst, especially when it's hard. Help us to tap into that mercy which flows from Christ and to be part of your reconciling work in our world. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.